Hello and welcome to Sports in the Waiting Room. I am your host, Chris Russo. This is episode number 48, being recorded on Wednesday, October 20th, 2021. So much to discuss this week. Wishing you my very best go-to MLB postseason. We're off to the League Championship Series at this point, each League's Championship Series. Go over most of the NFL highlights, at least the really good games, or at least the decent games from the last week. Talk a little bit about NBA's uh, the NBA's opening night and the Bucks and the Nets, as well as the kind of hysteria almost. I was going to say hype, but really hysteria surrounding Ben Simmons and what his future may be in Philadelphia. And then we'll actually talk a little bit about Evander Kane's suspension. And it may not be quite for what you think if you have uh, not been uh, noticing as of late. But we start with. Well, first, let's go with a little bit of a recap of the uh, division series. So uh, last week, uh, we, had, we had already spoken last week that the Rays had already been knocked out by the Red Sox, and we had already had, I think ev- I think every game was, every series was locked up, well, except for Dodgers-Giants was the big one. The Astros, oh yeah, the Astros were knocking out the White Sox as we were speaking, and they would do so, and then... It was the Giants, well, pardon me, and it was the Braves and the Brewers, a surprising victory for the Atlanta Braves over the Milwaukee Brewers. So, a little recap just at the end of the Dodgers-Giants series, which was Friday night. So, of course, the Dodgers won Game 4 in L.A. The Dodgers took a 1-0 lead early in Game 5 in San Francisco, Giants tied the game on a solo homer by Darren Ruff, and Corey, excuse me, Cody Bellinger, with an RBI single in the top of the ninth, one of two really clutch hits so far this postseason, entering Game Four of the NLCS, and of course, bottom of the ninth, Giants put a man on with two out. Wilmer Flores comes to the plate. Of course, a favorite of many people in my area. And Flores gets called for going around on, uh, I think it was it might have been 0-2, I want to say, and was not even close, not even remotely close. Gabe Morales was the first, first base umpire, and he's received a lot of flack over the last week. And again, you don't want to go too harsh. You, you don't want to be too harsh on umpires, but it, it, it's all about admitting the mistake. I think we noticed that with, I mean, one of the most egregious examples of it was, of course, Jim Joyce and pretty much robbing Armando Galarraga, not intentionally, but robbing Armando Galarraga of a perfect game and a no-hitter. This was in, like, 2010. But Jim Joyce, that, that's how you know umpires are human, came out and was incredibly emotional and, and, and apologized for uh, for not being able to, to see it properly. And, you know, another one is uh, Don, I forget if it's Denkinger or Denkinger, first, who was the first base umpire, Game 6 of the 85 World Series, Cardinals and Royals, ninth inning, Roy, uh, the Cardinals up one nothing, misses a fairly obvious call at first base, 
I don't know if it cost the Cardinals the series because there was nobody out at that point. It would have been the first out of the ninth, but it did hurt them. Royals went on to win the game. They won the series the next night. But apparently, you know, it's still a game. Whitey Herzog, from from what I've seen, Whitey Herzog and Don Deckinger apparently still, I think, do like charity stuff together. So a game's a game. But you're still getting paid. This is still your job. And again, not to single out Gabe Morales because a lot of umpires have made bad calls in critical situations. They could be good most of the time but they can just make you know a bad call at, at a bad time. And Morales did at this point. It was, it was really a bad call. The one thing I question is maybe going so hard on him when it's not that much better an angle for a first base umpire, first base umpire or a third base umpire to see a check swing than it is for a home plate umpire. The truth is the people who actually see it best are the people in the dugout. Because it's at that point where you actually are perpendicular to the bat. You are directly perpendicular to uh, the bat and to home plate at that point if you're at, at least if you're at a certain part within the dugout. Whereas it's a much different angle from the first base umpire or the third base umpire. It's much more difficult to read. And uh, there's the argument now maybe... Maybe they should be able to review check swings. Part of me likes that, but I think a bigger part of me... I think part of me appreciates human error at times just because of what what it makes us. It makes us human. And and even that strike zone... Like a strike zone, you know, the robotic strike zone. I disagree with a lot of calls at times uh, in the strike zone, but sometimes they're not... Necessary. No. Sometimes it's very, very difficult to tell, and it could go either way, and you shouldn't blame the umpire for that. Now, this one, and again, this one didn't necessarily cost the Giants their season. Well, let me take that back. It's not necessarily that the Giants would have come back because you know they were down to their last out. But the tying run was on first base. It's not like he had a man on third or the bases loaded, but the tying run was on first base and the team's season was on the line. But it's tough to see a season end like that. And the other thing is, I would argue for a restructuring of the postseason. And the truth is, this should go for, for all four of the major sports leagues, where... If you have, a, if you don't finish with the best record in your division, but you finish with a better record than a team than a team that has won the division, uh, and and you're good enough to be a wild card, I would argue maybe you should get home field. You should get that. You should get a higher seed, and that team should go down. And you should be rewarded for for winning your division. It, it's important, but the Dodgers this year won 106 games in the regular season. The Giants won 107. And because they're in the same division, the Dodgers had to play not only play in the wild card game, but have to go on the road to play San Francisco. And the crazier thing about that is, now that the Dodgers have knocked out the Giants, but the Dodgers still are first wild card, 
the Dodgers have had to go to Atlanta for the first two games of the series of the NLCS. Now, do the Braves still have a 2-0 lead after two games or a 2-1 lead after three games if the first two games were in Los Angeles? I'm not going to tell you that for sure. I'm not going to tell you that they definitely won't. But it's different. Because the Braves won 88 games and the Dodgers won 106. That That's an incredible difference. It's an incredible difference. So maybe in... Maybe in a more just postseason system, the Dodgers and Giants don't meet each other until the NLCS. Maybe that's what happens, and maybe that only decides Game 5. It only decides who goes up 3-2 as opposed to who wins the series. But regardless, yeah, it all ultimately came down to that call. And it's funny because, again, with the umpiring stuff, it's not even the first... Major call that I would say um, Gabe Morales actually made this year that had uh, postseason implications that was perhaps incorrect. Well, it wasn't correct. I remember earlier this summer there was one that, and again, the 162-game season, you know, uh, uh, something's bound to go wrong with, with, when you have that many games. But there was some Sunday night uh, game, uh, Yankees-Red Sox, in the Bronx, and I think the Yankees had rallied to tie the game in the ninth, and I saw this recently, just some compilation of, of poor calls, and one of them was, Morales was the home plate umpire, I think the Yankees had runners at the corners with two out in the ninth in a tie game, and it's a called strike three that's about a foot off the outside part of the plate against Rugnet Odor on a 3-2 pitch, would have loaded the bases, and again, it's not to say the Yankees win, uh, but the... But it would have been ball four. It should have been ball four, and the bases should have been loaded. And instead, Red Sox get out of that inning. They go to extras. They win, and it's because of that. Well, in part because of that. Not to mention the ninety or so, or so, however many other games the Red Sox won, or games the Yankees blew, that the that the Red Sox got home field at Fenway instead of at Yankee Stadium because they were tied, and the Red Sox got the tiebreaker. So maybe things are different there. I don't know. It's the same thing with the, you know, the Braves Dodgers argument, but so there are many calls over the course of a, over the course of the year that can be made that can change the game. And even though the Dodgers deserve to win this series, there will still be a little bit, a little bit of a black cloud. And this is the series that's going to be a call. that's going to be discussed until the Giants have opening day next year. But the other, the other funny thing was, in a, in a kind of karmaic sense, there was a call. I did not realize this one. There was a call earlier this summer where the Giants played. I think this was in L.A. And I, I, I forget what it was exactly. I think Darren Ruff was up with the bases loaded in the ninth. And I think tying run on third... Check swing should have been strike three against Kenley Jansen. Instead, they said he did not go around, even though it looked like he clearly did. Giants tied the game; they went on to win the game, and that is perhaps and that and maybe that is the difference between the Giants getting uh, between the Dodgers getting the best record in baseball and the Giants getting the best record in baseball. So there you go; it's it's a whole thing. But the the, the more talented team, the better managed team, probably 
ultimately won. Dodgers are in the NLCS, and somehow, without Ronald Acuna Jr., the Atlanta Braves have taken a two games to none. Well, took a two games to none lead in this series, going to Los Angeles, and on on the back of multiple walk-offs, a great job by their bullpen late, a little bit of pop, and a fairly good job by their starting pitching. They they kept the Dodgers, they contained the Dodgers. For how good that lineup is, the the starting pitching did a good enough job in the first two games. And the Braves were able to rally late, went on a walk-off in Game 1, went on one in Game 2. I believe it was Austin Riley and Eddie Rosario, respectively. And in Game 3, the Braves had a golden opportunity to blow open the series and take a stranglehold on it, take a three-games-to-none lead. They had, they were able to gain a 5-2 lead in the 8th inning after scoring, I think, four in the fourth. And, well, th- well, this game was kind of a mess. The Dodgers ended up winning 6-5. A three-run homer by Cody Bellinger off Luke Jackson. Ties the game in the eighth off a ball that is probably shoulder high. I don't know how he got a hold of it. And was still probably like seven rows back in the bleachers in right center. So, uh, Bellinger ties the game. Uh, then I think uh, Taylor gets on, and Mookie Betts uh, doubles him in, and uh, Dodgers hold on to win 6-5. They're on the board in the series 2-1. to one. And the, the, the crazy thing was, there were a couple of really big missed opportunities by both teams, actually. First off, the Braves had first and second with nobody out to start the game in the first inning before this really bad double play. I think this was... I believe it was Eddie Rosario on second base who made this terrible read. And the ball did kind of stay up there, but it was a liner into center that Gavin Lux grabbed. And I'm very surprised that it was that Rosario was going. And so they got a double play out of it, whereas it would have been first and second with one out. And so they get that, and then Walker Bueller gets a strikeout to end the inning. That was probably the big point there. Then then Corey Seager hits another two-run homer, another first-inning two-run homer. By the way, Dodgers, just to go off onto a tangent, into a tangent here, the Dodgers should keep Corey Seager, or at least try to keep him, because they're, everybody keeps saying they traded for Trey Turner to be his successor, and in many ways, Trey Turner is a better ball player than Corey Seager is. He's a better base stealer and maybe a better pure hitter. That being said, Corey Seager was the World Series MVP last year. He's had clutch hit after clutch hit, clutch homer after clutch homer in this postseason. He is tied with Justin Turner, despite despite playing one last year with the Dodgers, tied with Justin Turner for the most playoff home runs in franchise history. Last year, he's the World Series MVP last year. That should say enough. And frankly, they could probably, they're the Dodgers. They could probably find the money to, to sign both of those guys if they really wanted and keep one of those guys, I would think more likely Turner, I guess, at second base if they really wanted. But regardless, Corey Seager cracks a two-run homer, opens it up to nothing, as he had in, I think it was game two, he had a two-run homer in the first. But the Braves came back to win that game. And the Braves, surely enough, came back with four in the fourth to take a 4-2 lead and knock Walker Bueller out of the game. Now, the real turning point here, and it would have been the turning point in the series, would be this uh, two-strike pitch 
that was a clear strike three on, I think it was Jock Peterson, actually, the former Dodger. And would have been a huge out. But Jerry Meals did not call it a strike, even though it looked like it absolutely got the inside corner. Pretty blatant, I thought, actually. And then Jock Peterson lines a base hit into right, puts a run on the board, 2-1. to one. Braves scratch, scratch across three more, and they take a 4-2 lead. They knock out Bueller after three and two-thirds. Now, I will also say that that was not the only mistake of the of the inning that hurt the Dodgers. There was there was that one be, there was that call that should have been strike three, but also Gavin Lux dropped a fly ball in right center. Now I will say this is Lux was at fault because you know, obviously he dropped the ball. I I thought I kind of saw it coming because he was moving around very strangely. It's possible that that the wind took the ball a little bit because he couldn't. He was moving around in a way where it looked like he couldn't really find it. And while I can't take the blame away from him, I can also say that it did not help that it was so sunny because for some reason this game was scheduled for 2 o'clock Pacific Standard Time on a Tuesday. It was scheduled for 2 o'clock on a Tuesday West Coast Time. Which doesn't make any sense. It's bad enough that you have a two o'clock game on the West Coast on a, on a on a weekday, and it's not a holiday. But then you also factor in it's the city with perhaps the most the the most notoriously bad traffic in America, if not the world, in Los Angeles. And so I I remember what I see. I remember seeing the. Just kind of the opening shot of this ball game, and it looked like maybe half the stands were empty. And again, that is you know something that's fairly normal, I think, for Los Angeles. That's how bad the traffic is. But at two o'clock on a Tuesday is ridiculous, and the fact that they played the Red Sox Astros game in Boston, East Coast. This was not in Houston. This is not Central Time. They played it in Boston on the East Coast at eight o'clock. Why is that game eight o'clock? And the game in L.A., 5 Eastern, 2 Pacific. It should have been the other way around. And then for some reason, today, Game 4, and tomorrow, Game 5, well, well, tomorrow the Red Sox and Astros won't be playing anyway, but Game 4 for the Dodgers and Braves is the late game, while Game 5 of the Red Sox and Astros the same day is the early game. So why would you switch things around in the first place? It doesn't make sense. It's not like they were playing on a Saturday or a Sunday. It doesn't make any sense. So that obviously did not help Lux because he doesn't misjudge that fly ball if the sun is, you know, if if it's three hours later. It's really something that did not make any, make any sense. But what should not be overlooked, of course, Dodgers come back to win it 6-5. Turning point in the series, the eighth inning, three-run homer off Luke Jackson by Cody Bellinger. And the Dodgers are on the board in the series. It's two games to one. Uh, they will go with uh, Julio Arias, who has, I'd probably say Walker Bueller was their ace this year. Again, they had, uh, well, Kershaw was dinged up, of course, and we don't know what his future is with the Dodgers. I think we mentioned that on the last podcast. Bueller was, I, I believe, their their best in ERA and one of the best in baseball. But Ari- Arias, 
120 games. And that's uh, such a rarity nowadays that you could also say he's an ace. So, and plus, Bueller only went three and two thirds. He, he got he was pretty unlucky in that fourth inning, but he only went three and two thirds. Now, I believe I probably said the Dodgers would beat the. Actually, you know what? I don't know if I said. Oh yeah, because I think it was Dodgers and Giants at that point. The series was not over. So at this point, I will say the Dodgers will win this series in seven games. Uh, they'll go to Atlanta and take a Game 7 on the road. Despite the Braves' impressive showing in Games 1 and 2, and for a decent portion of Game 3, Dodgers are too talented not to win this series. It's I, Dodgers and Giants were the two best teams in baseball this year, and I'm, I'm taking the Dodgers to win. Moving on to that ALCS, as a matter of fact, the Astros and Red Sox tied at two games apiece. Biggest issue for the Astros in this series, even in the games they have won, they've they won narrowly in Game One, and they were down for most of Game Four. They blew it open in the ninth. But even in those two games, their starters did not get any anywhere past I think two and two thirds. I think the most a starter has thrown for the Astros in a single game in this series has been two and two thirds innings. And that's ridiculous. The Astros need their starters to get past the third inning, let alone the fifth, which they have yet to do in this ALCS. Now, credit goes to the Astros' bullpen, which I thought was a bit of a weakness for them even when they won the World Series. I actually said the same about the Red Sox when they won the World Series the next year. Give so much credit to the Astros' bullpen for their job in Game 4 for silencing Boston's bats after consecutive blowouts, uh, uh, because Boston destroyed Houston in Game 2, destroyed him in Game 3, uh, grand slams galore, Kyle Schwarber tearing it up, uh, Devers tearing it up, Bogarts hit a two-run homer in the first off Zach Greinke in Game 4, and by the way, they finally go to Zach Greinke, who has been injured and has been kind of well, coddled, maybe isn't the right word, but he, he has been... They've been taking it easy on him because of his uh, his injury status, or his health status. Brought him back for Game 4. He gave up only two runs. He gave up the homer to uh, Bogarts, but they pulled him in the second inning. Dusty Baker pulled him in the second inning, which I just don't understand, when he is, again, probably still the best pitcher in that rotation. It obviously helps that you know Verlander's out. That Garrett Cole has left, Miley left, but Zach Greinke is probably still the best pitcher in that rotation. Even even as hurt even as hurt as times as he has been down the stretch this year. But the Houston bullpen should be praised for for tying this series. But of course, the you know, Red Sox pitching was good enough for a while. Surprisingly to me, uh, Nick Pavetta was very strong that the Red Sox held a 2-1 lead, took it into the eighth inning, before Jose Altuve took a first pitch, it may have been a fastball, I want to say, and drove it well over the monster, and off that little advertisement, whatever that billboard is behind there, to tie the game at two, and then the Astros blew it open with seven in the ninth to win at 9-2. In game five, Good pitching matchup. Chris Sale, Framber Valdez at Fenway. It will be the early game. 
And as I as I record this, it's actually going to be ten minutes from now. And I, I will say that that was a must-win game for the Astros, especially with Sale going tonight. And they get home field back. The American League pennant will surely be was guaranteed to be won in Houston this year. I'll say the Astros will win this series in seven games, but I think the Red Sox are going to take this game tonight, and Houston's going to win the last two at home. We will take a break. We'll come back. We'll discuss the NFL highlights of the week. All right, week six of the NFL regular season has concluded. We'll just go over the highlights of the week, starting with the... Let's start with the Jaguars and the Dolphins, actually. The Sunday morning London game. The Jaguars topped the Dolphins 23-20 to snap a 20-game losing streak. And here's one of two plays I will call the terrible decision of the week. Uh, The first one... Uh, well, another one I will mention in a, in a later game. First one is the Dolphins going for it on fourth and one from their own 46 with under two minutes to play in the fourth quarter and one timeout in a 20-20 to game. They did not get it. Jaguars march only 11 yards. I think they actually went backwards on the first couple of plays, as a matter of fact, and still only went 11 yards over the next minute 42 and still kicked the field goal to win. That being said, it was it was not a, a chip shot. I think it was a let's see, it'd be a 52-yard try. So I don't understand that decision by the Dolphins. Uh, and again, I mentioned 52-yard try, and it was not a given for the Jaguars with their kicking problems. Uh, they had somehow made their first field goal of the season earlier in that game and had actually... There was one kick that looked like it was going about that looked like it was going to go about a foot to the right or a yard to the right, and then hooked back left inside earlier in the game. Uh, but the Jaguars hold on to win and and snap a twenty game win, twenty game losing streak, dating back to last season. Uh, that being said, I know there's so much pressure on Tua Tagovailoa. He was not. I would not say he was the reason they lost this game. He went thirty three of forty seven for three twenty nine, two touchdowns, and a pick. I thought he played pretty well, and uh, I don't know. May, maybe it is that Trevor Lawrence and I mean, if you're losing to the mess that that Urban Meyer has created, I don't know what that really says about your team because I like Brian Flores's organizational skills and uh, w- what he's done for this team. This team that looked very promising last year and the year before, but I don't know. I did not expect this team to to be one in five. And lose to the Jaguars, um, so I don't I don't really know what the issue is at this point, but obviously there is one. The Dolphins really need to turn things around, uh, otherwise they'll have to rebuild yet again. The Green Bay Packers moving to the one o'clock games. Green Bay Packers theoretically own quote unquote the Chicago Bears on the road by a score of twenty four to fourteen, and Aaron Rodgers didn't have his best day. I think he had under two hundred yards. Was not it was not a shootout. But he, there was, as I'm pretty sure everyone has heard by now, audio, an audio clip or video clip, Rogers saying, I own you to the Bears fans. And I don't really, I don't really like that sort of showboating. I don't like Rogers showing off there, but honestly, it is so accurate that you had just have to back, you just have to back him up. Uh, he's for his career, for his career. He's 21-5 and against the Bears in the regular season. That's not even counting the win in Chicago in the 2010 NFC Championship game, the only NFC Championship game he has ever won. 
And on top of that, no quarterback in the history of the Chicago Bears. And and the Chicago Bears, when you include the pre-Super Bowl era, the two most successful franchises in NFL history in this order are the Green Bay Packers and the Chicago Bears. Packers have 13 titles, Bears have 9, and it's, but that being said, Packers have four Super Bowls, Bears have one. So, since the 60s, it's been a Packer-dominated, it's been a Packer-dominated rivalry. And the Packers have even overtaken in the last decade the head-to-head record. The Bears used to have a better head-to-head record all time against the Packers. Now, the Packers have that record. So it's so dominant, but no quarterback in the history of the Chicago Bears, despite winning nine championships, and with this is with all due respect to Hall of Famer Sid Luckman of what I guess would be considered the golden era, no quarterback in the history of the Chicago Bears comes even close to the talent or the success that Aaron Rodgers has had, because the only guys that can I can think of off the top of my head are that have really had success in Chicago are I don't know the first guy Sid Luckman of course. Jim McMahon helped lead the Bears to a Super Bowl title in 85. I know Jim Harbaugh was there later on. Rex Grossman took them to the Super Bowl. I guess Jay Cutler, Kyle Orton. It's not a a, a team with a rich history of court, of celebrated quarterbacks because Aaron Rodgers is so much better than every quarterback they've ever had, and it's that that's probably the that's probably been the separating factor between the Bears and the Packers over the last God knows how many years. That's been the biggest difference because the Bears have fielded a great team. 2010 Bears might have been a better team than 2010 Packers. The Bears had the number two seed. Packers had the, had the six. But the Packers ultimately won. Why? Uh, in large part, I would say due to quarterback play. I mean, uh, look at the Bears. Why did the Bears in the 80s with that vaunted 85 defense only win one Super Bowl? I uh, Could be quarterback play. And Justin Fields is the guy who could turn that around. I don't know what exactly is happening with the Bears, and they've had a kind of a hectic QB situation. I don't know if they're really locked into Fields, but it's the one position that has kept them eluding championships, or kept championships eluding them for the last 35 years. Another 1 o'clock game. The Giants were destroyed by the Rams in East Rutherford, 38-11. to Believe it or not, they actually led this game 3-0 after one quarter. The Rams put up 28 in the second quarter, somewhat reminiscent of the Washington Broncos Super Bowl, where the Broncos were up 10-0 at the end of the first quarter. I think it was at the end of the first quarter, and Washington dropped 28 on them in the second quarter, a Super Bowl record. So the Rams dominated this game. Giants led 3-0 after one. They actually, Daniel Jones picked apart the Rams' D on the opening drive after a, like a sack, big sack, and I I think a fumble, and a recovery by the offense on the first play from scrimmage. And after that, I think it was like third and 15, something like third and 14, 15, he finds Kadarius Toney for a first down that extends the drive. Picks them apart, marches down the field. They get to third and seven, maybe. Or might, might have been third and goal, but definitely deep in Rams territory. And Jones lobs one of the end zone on what appears to be pass interference against the Rams. A flag is thrown. For some reason, they pick it up. I don't know why. 
the, the Rams again benefit, benefiting from no review for uh, pass interference. And for that reason, the Giants have to kick a field goal and go up 3 nothing. Now, again, in a 38-11 to loss, the, the Giants can't blame, can't, certainly cannot blame that game on their loss on that one play, but I don't think it helped and it, it maybe turned the momentum for the Rams early on after a very surprising drive for the Giants. That's the thing. A couple of times this year, the Giants have just picked apart the defense on the opening drive and they just, they've just disappointed the rest of the way. Um, the Giants' O-line, I do have to say, gave in for the final 45 minutes to an overpowering Rams defensive line. They had been doing it decently in the last couple of weeks, but Daniel Jones just could not, uh, made bad throws, and that was due in part to just a horrible job of the offensive line. Andrew Thomas is out for a few weeks now. And it also did not help that Kadarius Tony. That was a sign of bad things to come for the Giants. That Kadarius Tony, after a after setting a franchise rookie record for receiving yards in Dallas, being the, the lone bright spot in their loss, where they lost three of their biggest skill players. Uh, Kadarius Tony was knocked out of this game with an ankle injury after the opening drive. So the Giants down to one and five. The Rams. Still one of the strongest teams in the league, and proving that in the final 45 minutes. Very underrated game. The Vikings defeat the Panthers 34-28 to in overtime in Carolina. The Vikings again play to their strength, and that is the play of Kirk Cousins. Um, I, I would say that, that kind of akin to that first play in the Giants-Rams game, or even... For first inning, going back earlier into the podcast, into that first inning between the Dodgers and the Braves in Game 3, probably should have seen this outcome coming from uh, Darnold getting picked off on the first play from scrimmage. Vikings only got a field goal out of it, but that, but that was significant. That being said, give so much credit to Sam Darnold for leading the Panthers back from now 28-17 in the last 10 minutes of regulation, getting a field goal, and then after that, Marching the Panthers 96 yards in a minute and 27 seconds, converting on fourth down twice, including a fourth and 10 on the first series, and getting a two-point conversion to tie the game at 28 apiece. The problem, however, Kirk Cousins then takes the Vikings 65 yards for a touchdown on the opening drive of OT. This ending was reminiscent to me of the 2014 regular season game. This was after the Seahawks had blown out the Broncos in the Super Bowl where the Broncos went to Seattle and Peyton Manning got the ball back with, I think, like exactly a minute left. And taking them, taking the Broncos down the field, down 20-12, to 12, took them 98 yards about in the span of a minute. I don't think he even had a timeout. Forcing overtime, getting the two-point conversion, forcing overtime... But the problem is the, the Seahawks then came back and ran all over Denver with Marshawn Lynch for five or so minutes to uh, to start overtime and win that game. But a really good quarterback duel at the end of that one. The Ravens destroyed the Chargers by a score of 34-6. to Chargers had showed, shown some might in the last couple of weeks. Jackson runs all over them. Cardinals. How about the Arizona Cardinals? 
for how, especially for how good the NFC West is, for how good the Rams are, for how good maybe in some, well, how good the Seahawks maybe would be if Russell Wilson was in, and for how kind of inconsistent and how good, at least good, the 49ers should be. How is it that the Arizona Cardinals are the team that's 6-0, the only undefeated team, not just in the NFC West, but remaining in the NFL at 6-0? They blow out the Cleveland Browns, 37-14 on the road. The Browns, one of the best teams in the American Football Conference. Baker Mayfield will be out for Thursday Night Football. Case Keenan will actually come in, and it looks like much of the offensive line is hurt as well as a couple of top receivers, and OBJ is one of them. So some 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 concerns for Cleveland, but even then, uh, Baker Mayfield's stats in this game were not terrible. I think he was 19-28 for two-something, not sure exactly. Uh, but uh, Cleveland, it's not just Baker Mayfield. Cleveland is a very good, very strong all-around team that really does not have any major weaknesses, I would say, in their starting lineups at, at, at any of the three phases of the game. But maybe Arizona is for real if they can if they can march into Cleveland and take them out by 23. I don't think Mayfield was hurt in this game. I think it might have been after. I didn't see the game, but I'm not sure. The Raiders, meanwhile, Raiders bounce back from John Gruden's very notorious resignation and defeat a, very, uh, a pretty strong uh, Broncos team, or at least maybe we thought a pretty strong Broncos team, 34-24 to 24 in Denver, showing us maybe it's not just his coaching that actually led them to their success early on in the year and to their uh, rebound, their recovery from a few really tough years. Because I mentioned in the last episode that, that uh, from a football standpoint, obviously John Gruden's comments were terrible, but from a football standpoint, it's really tough if you're a Raider fan because the team had looked very strong early on this season, and last year had looked as good as they had probably since before Derek Carr hurt his ankle, the year he he maybe should have won MVP, the 2016 season. So the Raiders win, and with how vulnerable the Chiefs have been at times, the Chiefs are somehow 3-3, three and three, and then apparently the, the Chargers are... I mean, if they got blown out by Baltimore, maybe they're not as good as we thought they were. The Raiders could end up winning the AFC West. If they can manage things well enough and maybe take a game from Kansas City, they could win the AFC West. Moving to the AFC East, an interconference matchup, Dallas Cowboys topped the New England Patriots 35-29 in Foxborough. And when you drop 35 points on a Bill Belichick defense, it it begs the question, does Dallas actually have the best offense in football? Because, And I say this because Bill Belichick, even though he knows Tom Brady, and I know this is kind of a, maybe a bit of a stretch, but especially because it was raining that night, but the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the defending world champions, only scored 19 points in New England. They won, but they scored only 19 points in New England. And it was pouring, and maybe it's because Belichick knows Brady, but Dallas put up 35 points. And, uh, I mean, in terms of quarterback play, I mean, it's kind of apples and oranges. I might take a healthy Dak Prescott over a healthy Tom Brady right now, 
And, I mean, I definitely take Dallas's running backs over Tampa's running backs. Tight ends, uh, I mean, Tampa's tight ends are, I'm sorry, uh, Dallas's tight ends are younger. And, again, it's Rob Gronkowski, but Tampa's tight ends are younger, maybe a little more reliable, a little less injury prone. The receiving core, it's really tough to judge. I think I'd take, I think I'd probably take Amari Cooper or C.D. Lamb over Mike Evans. I'm, that, that, again, that might be a stretch. I might take Amari Cooper or C.D. Lamb over Mike Evans. And then it's different with Chris Godwin because he's a slot receiver, and it seems like Dallas has a little bit more of a deep ball offense. Godwin's the guy that Brady loves over the middle. Dallas might have a better offense. Tampa's definitely got a better defense. That's the difference. And I think that was the difference in the Super Bowl last year is that Tampa has an amazing front four good and a very good linebacking core. Secondary's, eh, secondary's okay. But it's the pass rush that separates the, the Buccaneers from the Cowboys. And, and that's why the, the, the Cowboys probably allowed 29 points to a good quarterback in Mac Jones, but really still a guy who has not... Uh, the team that has not put up a lot of points, still kind of a game manager, kind of an 0-1 era Brady, you know, I mean, pre-Super Bowl, but kind of an early stage. So even though the Dallas defense has shown signs of improvement, especially by bringing in Micah Parsons, there are still things to be done, but can you say Dallas is a Super Bowl contender? Yeah. Talk to me in talk to me in talk to me in two months. They've got the offense for it. I can tell you that for sure. the The big question is whether they actually have the defense for it, and uh, can they take that that championship experience as a factor? And the only person who really has that is Mike McCarthy. Mike McCarthy. Well, and I mean technically Jerry Jones, but on the field or on the sideline. The only person with real championship experience is Mike McCarthy. And whether that comes down and really comes out in the Cowboys' performance in January, assuming they win the division, is yet to be seen. Steelers top the Seahawks 23-20 in overtime. Uh, on Sunday Night Football, T.J. Watt forces a fumble in overtime. This is I really it should be a concern if you're the Steelers, and we've been talking about Big Ben's arm strength really weakening, but the the fact that they only won this game in overtime against the Geno Smith led Seahawks team, and yeah, uh, Geno Smith respectable quarterback, but you know, if Russell Wilson's in this game healthy, this may be a blowout, and, and this game's at home. They, they survive. They survive by the skin of their teeth. The Tennessee Titans defeat the Buffalo Bills by a score of 34-31 to on Monday Night Football. Great game. Derrick Henry with three touchdowns. The Bills... This is the other one that I think was the terrible decision of the week, and it's possible this might be worse. The Bills opt not to kick... The potential game-tying field goal on 4th and 1 in the final minute. Josh Allen stuffed on a QB sneak. 
Titans get the football. That's it. They wrap it up 34-31. Now, I, I, I understand the aggressive decision there from how strong an offense the Bills have, but I, I don't... I tend to, as a football strategist, I guess, and again, I'm an amateur, obviously. I've never coached, never, I've never played. The most I've played is flag football. But I tend to, I'd be, I would be a more conservative play caller. And obviously that's what separates me from the Bills anyway, because the Bills not only have the talent, but the Bills have the deep ball. And aggressive play calling is what wins them games. But this was this cost them the game. You take the points, you go to overtime, you hope you win the coin toss, and maybe that's also a question of, uh, do I really trust my defense for Sean McDonough at that point? Maybe, maybe that's the real question. The Bills made a terrible decision, but the, the the one thing this does show that despite that decision by the Bills costing the game, costing them the game, it does show that the Titans can win shootouts. It's not just Tannehill throwing for play action on third down and handing it to Derrick Henry the rest of the time. They can win shootouts, and Derrick Henry produced in the red zone three touchdowns, including that insane seventy-six yarder, but. The, the Titans maybe can make some noise in the South, especially with how the Colts have played for, at least how the Colts played early on in the year, the first three weeks or so. Uh, they blew out the Texans this week, but again, Texans shouldn't be that big a challenge. They just really shouldn't. Take a break, come back, and talk about the NBA for a brief moment. We are back, and we are discussing... This uh, opening night game, the Milwaukee Bucks returning uh, for their first game since winning their first NBA championship in 50 years against the Brooklyn Nets, who they defeated in seven games in the Eastern Conference semifinals. Game seven in Brooklyn. This game in Milwaukee, the Bucks win this one by a score of 127 to 104. And besides the Bucks getting the exorbitant rings that they did, I would say most of the discussion, I would say at least leading up to this game, would be centered on Kyrie Irving, although I think I think the Nets did the right thing in, in telling Kyrie not to play this year if he's not going to get vaccinated just because he... Uh, it, it would be such a distraction for this team. And I, I think that's why he wasn't mentioned as what as much. But again, it's still a Nets team that needs some sort of defense in order to win. And I don't think I don't think they lose any defensive ability when they lose Kyrie Irving, but they do lose some of their scoring ability. And it was somewhat noticeable that he was not in this game because 107 points, the final score was 100 and, 104 points, 127 to 104 in favor of the Bucks. KD had 32 points. James Harden had 20, which is a little low for him, but he's got to play the shooting guard position now with Kyrie out. He's got to play the shooting guard position 
a lot more often. And then uh, Patty, Patty Mills actually dropped 21. That one surprised me. But KD with a minus 20 on the floor. James Harden with a minus 20. And when you have a team that's not very strong defensively, aside from maybe KD, I would say Blake Griffin impro improved his defense. I don't know, maybe, maybe a little bit LaMarcus Aldridge in the 15 minutes he played. You need to, to score a lot of points. You need to compensate for that with a lot of points. Now, my bigger concern for the Nets is when, inevitably, as they were last year, Kevin Durant and or James Harden will be sitting out later this year. Because, inevitably, there will be a game where, if not one of them uh, just sits then one or both of them will be hurt. Because that, that was kind of a commonality that one of these three guys was going to be hurt last year at some point, at a, at a, at a, fair, at a somewhat common pace that one of these guys was going to be out. And it's at that point where you'd really be concerned for this team because at least when KD or Harden or Kyrie was out, there was always one guy to pick up the slack and carry the team on his back offensively. With KD and Harden out, and again, at some point this year, it's probably going to happen. I hate to say it, but with how common, it, how common the injuries were, it's probably going to happen at some point. Who is there to pick, up, to, to pick it up for the offense? I'm not going to expect Blake Griffin to take over the game now. He's passed his prime. I'm not expecting Patty Mills to take over the game. I'm not expecting a LaMarcus Aldridge that was retired for three months to take over the game. Bruce Brown, who only played under four minutes in this game against Milwaukee, by the way. I'm not expecting Joe Harris. Joe Harris is a good ball player. I'm not expecting him to take over the game the way that KD or Harden or Kyrie would. And that's... I think when they're going to miss him the most. I think it was ultimately the right decision to to tell him just go home if you're not going to get vaccinated because we're not going to play with you part time. We're not going to play with you for I'd say probably about 38 regular season games when you take away the games in Brooklyn, the game, the two games he'd miss at the Garden, and the one game he would miss in San Francisco because of mandates. The Nets made the right decision, but for a lot of the year, or for at least a, a portion of the year, it's very much going to hurt them. And again, I hope Kyrie does get vaccinated because he makes the game more exciting, that's for sure. But he, this is what he's decided to do. And so for the foreseeable future, Kyrie Irving will not be playing in the NBA, and that's going to hurt the Nets. The Bucks, meanwhile, Giannis with 32 and 14 rebounds, 7 assists. Uh, Chris Middleton with 20. Grayson Allen actually had 10. Drew Holiday had 12. Pat Connaughton had 20. Uh, jo Jordan Wara had 15. Uh, they that was another big one. The, the Nets were completely out-rebounded by 54-44. That's not as bad, maybe, as I thought it would be. And they 
turned over the ball 12 times. Milwaukee only turned it over seven times. I, one thing I do want to bring up, shout out to Sandro Mamakalashvili, Seton Hall grad, who was signed by the Bucks and actually made their roster, which I was very surprised to see because I know people kept saying that his skill set translates better to the NBA than, than Miles Powell's does. But it's very nice to see him make a roster. He played over seven minutes in this first game, had a, a plus-minus, a plus-nine, plus had a rebound, had an assist, went 0 of 1 from the field. And he's a guy that, that could make significant contributions to this team off the bench if they give him the opportunity. I actually got, I was fortunate enough to call his games for about two years, really. I didn't really start calling games until my junior year, but to work on games that he played for three years. I was in a class with him, and I hit class. Shavar Reynolds was also in that class, and I, as you might imagine, would not stop talking. I was pretty much the only person who talked in that U.S. history class. I probably talked more than the professor. And uh, so it's just a cool thing to see because, yeah, we do, you know, as, you know, when you're, you're a sportscaster or a sports journalist, you have to separate yourself from the actual on-field, on-court, on-whatever experience. But uh, it, it, it's cool to see something personal like that happen. And I also think just as someone who went to Seton Hall, someone who covered Seton Hall basketball, someone who's had multiple other family members go to Seton Hall in some way, shape, or form. Uh, Seton Hall's players, I think, have been overlooked by the NBA. I kind of saw that with, at least in recent years, I would say that, because I think Miles Powell is is better than, than some guys on NBA rosters. I think he deserves a shot. I thought Isaiah Whitehead deserved a, a better opportunity, especially for a guy who left after two years for a team that could have won a title. I thought Angel Delgado, Desi Rodriguez, maybe even Kadeen Carrington deserved more of a shot in the NBA. And, you know, Sandra Mamakalish really is just a guy who represents the the playing ability of Seton Hall men's basketball players beyond college basketball. So, so that's, that's something that's really cool. One thing I do want to mention... Uh, before we transition to the Evander Kane thing, Ben Simmons suspended for the opening night game by the 76ers after a practice. Simmons reportedly twice refused Doc Rivers' demand to participate in a defensive drill. Doc Rivers said, just go home. Simmons dropped the ball, just walked away without saying a word. The Sixers have fined Ben Simmons a total of $1.4 million for not playing in the four preseason games, as well as missing, he's also missed practices, he, missed, he has missed worked out, workouts, missed meetings. Apparently, I, th I thought I saw something that said he has not been paid at all by the team so far this season, which I find really funny to think when you consider that Ben Simmons is not getting paid for not showing up and Kyrie, Kyrie Irving is getting paid, I think, still like $17 million for the games 
that he would have been able to play. And Ben Simmons, <laughs> and ben Simmons is vaccinated. But Ben Simmons just, I guess he decides it's not worth it. He said he wanted to be traded over the summer and then showed up at camp for some reason. Joel Embiid had a quote, apparently, after this whole thing happened. said something to the extent of, I don't really care about that man anymore. Let's move on to something else. And when you ask for a trade and then show up, I don't know what other... I don't know what, what other expectations you can have other than hostility from your teammates. You know, the idea of, uh, is it my fault? Is he, am I the reason he wants out? Why does he, does he not like us anymore? Does, does he not think we can win with him? Does he think we're the problem? And it causes anger and frustration among the entire organization. So it's, uh, Ben Simmons has to be, I would have to imagine Ben Simmons They'd have to trade him as soon as possible for anyone who would take him. There's a rumor that he could go to Brooklyn, but for Kyrie Irving. But the, the truth is, it's only going to cause more hysteria, and well, it wouldn't really cause it in Brooklyn so much. But I think it would cause more madness in Philadelphia. I don't think the Sixers would make that trade. I don't think the Sixers would make that trade. I don't, I don't know if anybody who would, who would trade for Kyrie at this point. I don't think anybody is that desperate. But anyway, the moving on, one last thing before we wrap up the this week's podcast, and that is that Evander Kane was suspended 21 games. And as soon as I saw the headline, Evander Kane suspended 21 games, I assumed it was for something else. I because he had been accused of gambling, and I think maybe uh, like gambling to a point like where maybe he had thrown games, and he had been accused of domestic abuse by his soon-to-be ex-wife. There was no substantial evidence to to prove either of those charges, but Kane has been suspended 21 games for breaking protocol. Due to COVID, breaking COVID nineteen protocol, and I don't know if maybe look, I'll I'll assume that's a valid reason, but maybe there was just, I mean, the fact that it was twenty one games. I mean, remember last year when Justin Turner had COVID, and again, differently. Remember last year when Justin Turner had COVID, and decided to come out for the World Series, and found out during Game Six of the World Series, and then came out for the celebration anyway and somehow was not fined or suspended by the league, didn't get any punishment. And yet Evander Kane, at a time where COVID is receding, levels are receding because so many people are vaccinated, he got suspended 21 games. Maybe there was enough evidence to to prove suspicion of Evander Kane. I don't know. That's, But obviously it's... He's been a questionable character, I guess, to say the least. And he's he's out for something. And hopefully it makes the game better. That does it for us this week. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate your time. And I will see you again. Or you will hear me again 
on next week's episode of Sports in the Waiting Room.